Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Twas early in a fine summer's morning. It was on a cold February morning in 1803 that Father Thomas Coots packed his things and prepared for the long journey to Keeper Hill. News had reached his home in the town of Newport that Ellen Kennedy had given birth on an outlying farmstead and the priest was required to perform the baptism. Before long he had left Newport and was travelling northwestwards towards the mountains to perform the ritual. In the depths of winter, the 10-kilometre journey from Newport to Keeper Hill was a test of faith of a kind for the priest. The recently constructed and well-surfaced Turnpike Road would take him halfway there, but then, a few kilometres outside of Newport, he would have to leave the Turnpike and strike east into the hills. This began the difficult leg of the journey, along the mountain tracks that passed for roads. The biting winds that howled up the Shannon estuary to his west would pick away at him relentlessly while his horse struggled to find its footing. However, the priest had no choice. This journey couldn't wait. Time was of the essence. In an age with high infant mortality, if he put off this journey, even another day, it might be too late. For all he knew, the newborn child might already be ailing. Having served this rural parish since the 1790s, he had undoubtedly, on many occasions, arrived at similar remote farms to perform a baptism, only to find the baby had died while he was en route. After a few hours on the road, the priest finally caught a glimpse of the Kennedy farmstead on the horizon. A growing sense of expectation hung over the hill. He waited anxiously for the piercing wail of a baby echoing across the lonely hillside, but the welcoming smile of the Kennedys as he approached the house finally confirmed all was well. Inside the home, a weary but joyous Ellen Kennedy presented the priest with the baby, a girl. Father Coots, acquainted with the Kennedy family, had little need to ask of the child's name. She was the firstborn to Ellen and William, and in accordance with the naming conventions and traditions of the age, she would be given the name of her maternal grandmother, who in this instance was also called Ellen. Inside the house, Father Coots set about his task, removing his prayer book, 
and holy water from his satchel. Then, in the presence of two godparents, Andrew Kennedy and Maria the MacDonnell, the unsuspecting newborn was splashed with holy water while the priest uttered words in Latin he alone could understand. With the ritual finished and the small talk complete, the Kennedys paid the priest and Father Coots climbed into his saddle to retrace his steps down the mountain. His eyes focused on the distant town of Newport and the warm fire that awaited him, two hours and a world away. If fear for the child's immortal soul had driven the priest up the mountain, concerns for his own safety and the gathering darkness on the eastern skyline ensured he did not delay long on Keeper Hill. A later visitor to the area, the Welshman Samuel Lewis, captured the terrain the priest now faced. The Keeper Mountains form a wild tract of country, extending about 480 square miles, throughout which there was scarcely any road passable for wheel carriages. Navigating these trails and tracks would be treacherous after dark. When the priest reached the turnpike road at the foot of the hill, he could rest easy. The mountain tracks gave way to solid road, and even if darkness fell, he had little to fear. The solid surface underfoot alone was enough to guide him home. Safely back in Newport, the priest carefully entered the baby's name in the parish register, Ellen Kennedy, along with her parents and godparents. His task complete, he gave little thought to the young girl. If she survived, and so many didn't, he knew she would be the first of many, and there he was not wrong. The little baby did survive, and over the following years, the intermittent appearance of the black-cowled silhouette of Father Coots slowly making his pilgrimage up the hill to the Kennedy farm, marked the steady growth of the family. When Ellen was just 15 months old, her sister, Honora, was baptised on May the 23rd, 1804. While the church records for the following eight years were lost, he almost certainly visited at least twice before the records resumed in the summer of 1812. By then, Father Coots had passed on the baton to a new priest, Father James Healy, and he quickly became acquainted with the Kennedys, travelling to baptise three more of Ellen's siblings by 1817. With each visit, Ellen had grown little by little, and by the time the priest baptised the youngest Kennedy, a daughter called Mary, Ellen was already 14. The priest probably paid little attention to the girl slowly emerging from behind her mother's skirts. The Kennedys were farmers, and there were hundreds like them dotted across the hills, where life seemed to change at an imperceptibly slow pace. Within a few years, the priest would come to the house to marry Ellen to a husband, yet another farmer. Then he would be baptising their children, beginning the cycle all over again. These families lived and died in these hills, the world paying little attention to them and their wild ways. In the early 19th century, there was no reason to believe anything would change. However, of the many things that could be said about the 14-year-old Ellen Kennedy, average was not a word that summarised her life, and neither was the age she entered adulthood in. Life, as it had gone on for generations, was about to change dramatically and forever. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Murder at Mother Mountain. Part 1. This episode is the first in a 10-part series that follows the intriguing and forgotten life of Ellen Kennedy and a sensational murder she was embroiled in. 
The name of the series may sound familiar to some of you. It is based on a single episode I made about four years ago. But ever since I released that episode, I always felt that this incredible story had more to it. And over the last two years, whenever I had spare time, I was drawn back to Ellen and her strange story. Around 12 months ago, I knew that original episode hadn't done justice to the story, so I thought it would be worth revisiting in a more expansive series. I also wanted to make something that was an immersive history of the early Victorian world in Ireland. Now this series is going to take you way off the beaten track to a place and events that can be at times scarcely believable. Now to better understand the world of the early 19th century, I also interviewed experts, historians, Dr. Blana de Nolan, Dr. Neve Howland, Dr. Salvador Ryan and Dr. Sarah Ann Buckley, as well as the genealogist Martin Costello. Each week, between the main episodes of Murder at Mother Mountain, I will be releasing what are deep dives. These are shows based on the interviews with these experts to look at various aspects of the history. This week's interview is with Dr. Salvador Ryan, who's an expert on religion and spirituality in the early 19th century in Ireland. Before I begin, there's a few people that deserve special mention who you will hear from during the series. So additional research is from Liam Costello. I'm also delighted to welcome back Therese Murray and Aidan Crow, who you will hear throughout the series voicing contemporary accounts. The theme tune is The Banks of Ceylon, performed by Nell Necronin and Liam Costello on the pipes. While I will explain more later in the episode, this series was only possible because of the show supporters who deserve a special mention as well. But I will, as I say, return to that properly later in the episode. Throughout her adolescence, Ellen Kennedy was an infrequent sight around the town of Newport. Father Healy rarely, if ever, saw families like the Kennedys in the local church. Mountain communities struggled to make the 20-kilometre round trip to Mass each week. For Ellen, in her younger days, the occasions that did bring her into Newport were probably events like the fair, held four times a year, in April, May, July, and then the largest of all in October, which drew people from far and wide. On these trips, her amazement at the surroundings of Newport betrayed the stark contrasts between the world she grew up in, the world of the hill communities, and the world of the town. Newport was small, but it was a town nonetheless. It was dominated by a small square, which was overlooked by a courthouse, which had the local jail, the Bridewell, beneath it. There was also a doctor's dispensary that opened in 1825, a school and two churches, including the relatively new Catholic church built in the 1790s. Samuel Lewis, the Welsh visitor who arrived in the 1830s, captured its quaint appearance. The town is pleasantly situated on a considerable stream and contains 163 houses which are neatly built. The environs are pleasant. This contrasted sharply with the thatched cottages dotted across the mountains. There was no paved roads or cut stone buildings in the hills. However, these superficial differences in appearance masked far deeper, more important contrasts between town and country in West Tipperary in the early 19th century. These were differences that shaped how Ellen Kennedy perceived the world and what she could expect in life. Although only a few miles apart, travelling between Ellen's home on Keeper Hill and the town of Newport brought the young child across a frontier of a kind in the early 19th century. 
There's always tensions between urban and rural life, but the divide in West Tipperary was different. This frontier had been forged in one of the most violent epochs in Irish history, leaving Ellen's childhood and her adult life unquestionably different from that of children and indeed adults who lived on the other side of the frontier in Newport. These differences were sometimes subtle, yet inescapable. When Ellen walked around Newport, the name of the Waller family was inescapable. They were celebrated in place names and monuments for their role in developing the town. The original Waller had been a Cromwellian soldier, Richard Warren Waller, who had been granted land in the region for his service in the Cromwellian armies that defeated the king in the English Civil War and then launched a brutal conquest of Ireland. However, Ellen had a very different understanding of the Waller family and these seminal events. Her community did not celebrate the Waller family, given they were descended from the same people who had been driven off the land after their arrival. So while the Waller's name was etched into the very landscape around Newport, the local fortification was called Castle Waller, the mountain communities remembered different people. The townland in the mountains, Shanbally Edmund, is reputedly named after Edmund O'Ryan, known as Ned of the Hill, a celebrated outlaw, while the townland of Turin Bryan, a place that featured heavily in Ellen's life in coming episodes, was named after a certain Brian O'Madden who had been driven into the mountains by Cromwell. Around fires at night, the folklore passed down from one generation to the next in the mountains, told numerous stories of lost treasure associated with this Cromwellian dispossession, which presumably echoed the enduring sense of loss of power, wealth and status. Given the two communities, that of Newport and the surrounding mountains, set out in divergent paths in the 17th century, by Ellen's teenage years, around 150 years later, they were considerably different. Ellen's life was shaped by an adherence to custom and tradition that even in the early years of the 19th century seemed old-fashioned and outdated to some. The first doctor's dispensary opened in Newport in 1825, providing health care even to those who could not afford it. However, the communities in the mountains continued to visit several holy wells dotted across the hills. These wells, which had been in use in some cases for thousands of years, were widely believed to have healing properties. Indeed, local folklore recorded the rituals performed at one, known as Antobergial. Each person leaves something as an offering when he is leaving, such as beads, a picture, a statue, a coin, a fancy drinking vessel, a piece of ribbon, a medal. But food is never left there. People suffering from teeth aches, sore eyes, headaches, stomach troubles and bone disease take home some of the water and the sick will rub it to the affected part or else drink it. This tradition was part of wider religious practices that could be found in many parts of rural Ireland. These saw people in many instances celebrate religious feast days at places in the local landscape that they held sacred rather than in the local Catholic church. And these celebrations, therefore, sat uneasily with Catholic doctrine. A few miles east of Keeper Hill, an ancient site of spiritual devotion, Moher Clay, known in English as Mother Mountain, still maintained huge importance for the community. Each year, on August the 15th, Ellen Kennedy joined large crowds on the slope of the hill to mark the Feast of the Assumption. Events like this and celebrations of local saints' days, known as Pattern Days, could often descend into raucous festivals where the religious element gave way to drinking along with unruly and lascivious behaviour. Indeed, the celebrations at Mother Mountain on August the 15th, 1803, 
The first of Ellen's life may have prompted the conception of her sister Honora, who was born almost nine months to the day in 1804. However, while these traditions seemed quaint and had their own allure, the realities of life on the mountainous side of the frontier was once steeped in poverty and inequality. And when life began to get increasingly difficult, as it did in the 19th century with intermittent famine and food shortages, this would leave Ellen to grow up in a world surrounded by violence. In the 1830s, the Welsh visitor to the region, Samuel Lewis, had dismissed the mountains and their communities as an asylum of outlaws and robbers. While life could be violent, this statement was forged from ignorance. If Lewis wanted to understand the mountain community where Ellen's life began, the first port of call would have been the endemic poverty which could be traced back to the 17th century when the radically different experiences of that age had set the two communities on different paths. While Newport had grown into a prosperous market town, the mountain communities in the Schlieffalen Mountains were neglected and had languished behind. A mine had opened at Lackamore to the south of Keeper Hill to exploit copper in the area, but the employment it offered to local men was intermittent at best. Most worked and were dependent on agriculture. While Ellen's father, William, had a substantial farm of 60 acres which could provide for the family, the land around Keeper Hill was generally poor. The lack of roads impeded the ability of farmers like William Kennedy to carry out improvements, so on the whole, the area remained underdeveloped and impoverished. Further to this, the Kennedys and all others in the mountains did not even own their own land, but instead rented it from a series of landlords. However, these men were rarely if ever seen in the mountains. Some lived outside the county, and even those resident in the region rarely visited their lands in the hills. These conditions were not helped by the desperately difficult 19th century. 1815, the year of Ellen's 12th summer, had seen life in Ireland turn down a dark path. Truth be told, it had been on this path since 1801, when the Act of Union resulted in Ireland being ruled directly from London. The disastrous economic impact some had predicted from this union did not initially materialise. Through Ellen's early years, Ireland had enjoyed an economic boom arising from war in Europe, which led to high prices for agricultural goods. However, around 1815, things started to go wrong. The wars that had raged for decades definitively ended when the Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. Such was the way of Ellen's world that this momentous news spread slowly. Four days would pass before it was published in the Freeman's Journal in Dublin. When it reached the slopes of Keeper Hill in remote West Tipperary is hard to say, but it could have been weeks, perhaps even months. What celebrations this great victory provoked quickly soured in rural Ireland. The end of the war saw armies demobilised and continental trade resume, leading to a collapse in agricultural prices and the wider agricultural economy went into recession. Having been forced down a road of stronger links to Britain, the pearls and pitfalls of the Union were realised to their full potential, while the benefits now quickly disappeared. Ruled directly from London, Ireland was unable to shape its own economic destiny in increasingly uncertain times. Indeed, after 1815, Ellen really only ever knew an Irish economy that lurched from one crisis to the next. However, while some were deeply rooted in the wider economic circumstances, Ellen and her generation also experienced what seemed to be their fair share of bad luck as well. 
For example, the summer of 1816, known across the world as the year without summer, saw an enormous volcanic eruption in Indonesia lead to disastrous harvests and hardship. Five years later, the island suffered even greater hardship. September 1821 saw the first royal visit to Ireland in 130 years. However, William IV's tour of Ireland was overshadowed by torrential rains. By the middle of the month of September, newspapers noted rising food prices. In Enniskillen, the Chronicle reported, We perceive by the newspaper reports from different parts of the country that the crops have suffered from the late prevalence of heavy rain and consequent inundation of flat grounds. The situation was far graver than anticipated by many. By November, the Freeman's Journal was telling its readers that the potato crop was so poor it was hardly worth saving. The resulting food shortages and soaring prices was deeply concerning. Starvation set in for the poor. A report from Kappa, not far from Keeper Hill, reported 2,000 people were starving and a quarter were stricken with disease. While Ellen Kennedy was protected from immediate distress given her father had a considerable farm, food shortages always led to rising tensions and violence. In December 1821, outside Feathered on the far side of County Tipperary, Edmund Shea got into a dispute with his neighbours over land. The rising tensions in wider society would see this dispute escalate into horrendous violence. In mid-December, in an act of retribution against Shea, his house was burned to the ground, killing 18 people, including his pregnant wife, six children under the age of 12, along with several servants and labourers. For Ellen, as she approached her late teenage years, violence surrounding land affected her life and the lives of other women in a very specific way. That was the fear of abduction. As Ellen Kennedy advanced through her teenage years, she became acutely aware of the inequality in Irish society, even if she didn't understand it in such terms. She would find herself caught in a pincer between poverty on the one hand and patriarchy on the other, where girls like her, whose fathers had land, were at risk of violent abduction, which was rooted, oddly enough, in the marriage traditions of the age. The common, normal and accepted custom of the time would see Ellen marry comparatively young, probably before she was 20. However, the choice of husband would not be hers to make. A potential match would demand a dowry from Ellen's father in the form of livestock, money or perhaps even land. This gave her father the ultimate say over whom she married. He would not be able to pay the dowry demanded by a farmer with a much bigger farm than his own, while William Kennedy would not want his daughter marrying poorer farmers or labourers. This rigid class system, however, resulted in poorer men abducting women from wealthier families and forcibly marrying them in an effort to secure their wealth. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While the authorities were clamping down on this practice in the early 19th century, it continued across the region. For example, in 1827, Thady Ryan, Darby Ryan and James Maloney abducted Mary Hayes, a girl in her late teens near Tipperary town, in an attempt to marry her. In such incidents, many women refused to prosecute their attackers. Given many abductions involved sexual assaults, the fear of public humiliation and shame left many women feeling they had no option. The prospect of being abducted haunted Ellen and was a stark awakening to the realities of the world she lived in. Even the security of her own family home was not necessarily a guarantee of her safety. Abductions were not random, casual crimes, but carefully orchestrated raids. In 1838, a neighbour, Winifred Hayes, was abducted from her home, as this police report indicated. On the night of the 16th of July, a party of men entered the house of Margaret Hayes of Ballyclare in the parish of Kilvolane and carried away her daughter, Winifred. Were this to happen to Ellen, she could find herself pressurised to marry her abuser. One way to avoid this scenario was marriage. When Ellen Kennedy met Daniel Burkery is unclear. Burkery lived deeper in the mountains, at Turin Bryan, between Keeper Hill and Mother Mountain. A certain Jeremiah Kennedy found a large tract of land adjoining Daniel's, and while the relationship between this man and Ellen is unclear, it is possible he was her uncle. One of their children would be named Jeremiah. As was customary for the time, Daniel was considerably older than Ellen. His precise age was never recorded, but he may have been in his late 30s when they married. In terms of a match, Daniel came off the better from the arrangement. His farm of 40 acres stretching along the northern side of the Anna Valley was smaller than William Kennedy's. There is the slightest hint that the marriage may have been prompted to avoid a scandal. After their marriage in 1821, Daniel and Ellen did not appear in the parish records until 1824 with the baptism of their first child. However, decades later, a family letter would make reference to another child who would have been older still. While this letter will feature later in the series, it holds out the potential that Ellen may have fallen pregnant by Burkery prior to their marriage, although all attempts to locate this infant have proved fruitless. Whatever the case, Ellen married Daniel Burkery in a simple ceremony on February 14th, 1821, a few days short of her 18th birthday. Like her baptism, the ceremony took place in her parents' house on Keeper Hill. Of the two witnesses present, only the name of a John Kennedy, perhaps an uncle, is legible. By the end of the marriage, Ellen Kennedy was now Ellen Burkery, and her life on Keeper Hill was at an end. After the ceremony, she and her new husband set out across the mountains for his house three miles away at Turin Bryan. The married couple were slow to adjust to life together and there are hints that the early years of the marriage were not without difficulty. It would be three years before the priest would travel from Newport to baptise their first child. 
While there are many explanations for this, if the delay in starting a family was due to a difficult early marriage, this would hardly have been surprising. Ellen and Daniel did not know each other and he was considerably older than Ellen, so they may have had very little in common. There were also other factors outside the home that may have made the early years difficult. The first year of the marriage, after all, took place to the backdrop of food shortages and soaring violence in 1822. However, in 1823, Ellen did fall pregnant with what would be their first recorded child in the parish register. As I strolled by the banks of Ceylon, and to gaze on Let's take a breather from Ellen's story now. If you've ever looked into your own family history, you'll know how frustrating early 19th century records can be. Church records in particular, which were essential to understanding Ellen's early life in the parish of Newport, start and stop randomly. They often don't run in a chronological order, and to say the handwriting leaves a lot to be desired is a more than generous way to describe our ancestors' script. Ellen's story, however, became even more difficult after 1821 when she married Daniel because his name, Berkery, has multiple different spellings. I think at the last time of counting, we had come across 10 different variations in English and Irish. I always knew to tell this story I'd need help, so I was delighted when Lean got on board and then later on to create the more immersive experience that Nell was able to perform the Banks of Ceylon and Aidan and Therese could provide the amazing narrations. One group of people who deserve particular mention in all this, though, are the show supporters on Acast Plus and Patreon. Their generosity and donations were integral to producing this series. They allowed me to expand on what was previously just not possible. The research, accessing records, and in terms of this story, the time needed, all happened because of them. Now, if you want to fund content like this, you can support my work on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or Acast plus there's links in the show notes below it's really easy to sign up and you get ad free content there's hours of bonus shows as well and you get early access part two will be on patreon in just two days time now back to the show when Ellen Berkery formerly Kennedy fell pregnant in 1823 this marked a major change in her life. She would spend nearly all of the following two decades pregnant, in childbirth or recovering before starting the cycle again. Her early pregnancies in particular would have been extremely frustrating for Ellen. In accordance with perceived wisdom of the age, she would have had to lie in, basically a practice of spending several months in bed during her pregnancy in fear that movement could result in problems. In this instance, the pregnancy and birth appear to have passed off without any major incident. And in March 1824, she gave birth to a daughter, named after her own mother, and therefore was the fourth generation of women in her family named Ellen. For Daniel, he would undoubtedly have preferred a son who would in time help on the land. However, there was still plenty of time. Ellen was only 21, and ultimately it didn't take long for the boy to arrive. Indeed, in 1826 and 1827, Ellen gave birth in rapid succession to two more children, a boy named Stephen and the following year a girl named Grace. This began what was an extremely taxing decade on Ellen. She would give birth to five children in nine years. These were three boys, Jeremiah, William and Andrew, and two girls, Honora and Catherine. 
By 1838, she had eight children under 14. Then, after a break of five years, she had a final child, Daniel, in 1843. While this was exhausting, Ellen, like most women, also had to deal with grief. It was almost inconceivable for the Burkeries to have a family of this size without losing some of their children. In Ellen and Daniel's case, it was their eldest son, Stephen, and their youngest son, Daniel, who both died before adulthood. Indeed, Daniel would die before the age of three. Outside the home, she also faced the constant, looming threat of violence. Poverty frequently pushed people into desperate acts, and during her marriage, Ireland was unable to shake free of famine and food shortages. Crop failures in 1831, 35, 36 and 39, and then again in 1842, added tension in a society that was already riven with conflict. Given one of the root causes of this tension, the landlords were often distant figures. This tension found expression in conflict between farmers, like Daniel Burkery, her husband, and the poor landless labourers who often rented small plots of land from them. If farmers were thought to have unjustly evicted labourers, secret, oath-bound societies known as the Terrialts or White Boys organised attacks, sometimes damaging property, livestock, houses and all the way up to assaults and murder. Ellen's home county of Tipperary in particular remained extremely volatile throughout the 1830s. The government began to collect data on crime during this decade which painted an unsettling picture. In 1832 the police recorded 30 homicides across County Tipperary. This increased in the following years. In 1835 there were 41 murders in the county. Alongside these murders, there were dozens of serious assaults attributed to secret societies, 62 in 1835 alone. The region around Turin Bryan and Newport, the barony of Orney and Ara, was the most violent, according to Lieutenant Colonel William Miller, the Deputy Inspector General of the Irish Constabulary. The Devon Commission, a government report into land in Ireland, will conclude in the 1840s. In Tipperary for a long time past, and in some other counties more recently, there has prevailed a system of lawless violence, which has led, in numerous instances, to the perpetration of cold-blooded murders. This violence and the remote nature of the mountains would provoke a major response from the British authorities. At the time of Ellen's birth, this was a distant force, but this began to change in the 1830s, something that would have a profound impact on their lives and this story. Throughout Ellen Berkeley's early years, for better or worse, the central authorities had been a remote and distant force in her life. There was no police presence to speak of. This began to change dramatically in the early years of her marriage. In reaction to the surge in violence after the near famine of 1822, the government established the Irish Constabulary, the first police force in Britain or Ireland. While it had been founded by the major unrest of that year, there was also new ideas shaping political decisions in London as the government began to expand its reach into all regions no matter how remote and this meant that the frontier between the mountains and hills where Ellen had grown up and the town of Newport was going to come to an end. Indeed, in the later 1820s, these ideas would see the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Anglesey, turn his attention to the Schlieffalem Mountains outside the town of Newport where Ellen lived, which had for decades been beyond government influence and control. Anglesey considered the region, like most of his contemporaries, as backward and lawless, and in order to effect change he knew the first step was to break the region's isolation. 
To this end, he commissioned two major roads through the heart of the mountains, which would have a huge impact on Ellen's life. One ran north-south, connecting Nina to Tipperary, while the other, which would change Ellen's life, ran east-west, starting in the town of Thurless and finishing in the town of Newport. Work began in 1828 on what would become known as the Anglesey Roads. Construction was slow and at a cost of £27,000. However, when they were complete in the early 1830s, the road, running east-west, ran right by Ellen and Daniel Burkery's door. This road would bring huge changes. Richard Griffith, the engineer, explained his vision of how they would transform the mountains. A peaceful industry will supplant that system of lawless outrage which has hitherto been the disgraceful characteristic of the Keeper Mountains. Early travellers along the road were greeted with a degree of suspicion, but they were, in the main, benign. Indeed, much of that early traffic consisted of horses lazily plodding along the road, drawing carts of lime from local quarries. This was in fact a welcome sight. The lime was used to improve the soil, and better soil meant better grassland, improved crop yields, and at the end of the day, more money for farmers like Daniel and Ellen. However, the Lord Lieutenant, Lord Anglesey, had not spent the eye-watering sum of £27,000 building a road just to fertilise the soils of the Shreefalem Mountains. This was, if anything, incidental. Not long after the road was finished, the recently founded police force, the Irish Constabulary, later renamed the Royal Irish Constabulary, began to extend their tentacles into the mountains through a network of outposts. While there were major barracks at Newport and Thurless, a chain of smaller stations was built along the Anglesey Roads at Holy Cross, Drumbane, Kilcommon, Rear Cross and Lackamore. The once distant central government was now a lot closer. Indeed, for Daniel and Ellen, it was almost outside their door. The constabulary station at Lackamore was only 130 metres away and constables like Michael Foy and George Simpson, who lived in the barracks, were near neighbours. However, while the arrival of the police made it more likely that culprits could be apprehended, the violence across the mountains and in Ellen's own community, which was fuelled by poverty, continued. The local secret societies, often called the White Boys or the Terry Alts, continued to attack farmers and in some instances landlords. Indeed, they would kill Henry Wheeler, the underagent of Ellen's landlord, Lord Stratbrook, in 1831. When his son succeeded him, he was also brutally killed as well. Farmers with more modest holdings were also targeted. In 1842, a farmer named John Hanley was shot dead in the area after he took the land of two evicted tenants. Of the numerous incidents that had taken place over the 1830s and 40s, it was the murder of this man, John Hanley, which would have kept Ellen and Daniel awake at night. Hanley was not a powerful landlord. He was just a farmer like them who had fallen foul of his tenants. With all this bubbling beneath the surface, 1845 would prove to be a fateful year for Ellen, Daniel and everyone they had ever loved and cared for. In the early autumn, a mysterious fungus rendered potato plants across the island inedible. Around 40% of this crop, which underpinned the entire economy and provided food to around one-third of the population, was lost. While few starved in what was to be the first year of the Great Hunger, violence predictably surged again. Poor tenants couldn't pay rents and farmers began to evict. Tension and violence was on the increase. In this context, the appearance of the familiar sight of the local constable, George Morgan, approaching the Berkeley household on Christmas Day was an ominous portent. 
When they opened the door to the policeman, the constable's demeanour confirmed this was not a friendly visit. He brought distressing news. A threatening letter had been posted in Newport with a specific threat to Daniel Berkeley's life. The anonymous author warned Daniel he would get the contents of a blunderbuss if he did not evict a family of a labourer, Richard Rolls, who rented land from Daniel. This was somewhat unusual. In most instances, the local secret societies opposed evictions. What the tenant in question, Richard Rolls, had done is unclear. But given the recent history of the area, this was a threat that carried weight. When Constable Morgan bid the Berkery family farewell and returned to the police barracks a short distance away, Daniel and Ellen were left to mull over the dilemma they faced. While the anonymous writer demanded an eviction, this could possibly provoke Richard Rolls to take vengeance on them as well. Perhaps feeling more comfortable with the devil they knew, the Berkerys decided not to take action. However, the family now had to take precautions. Each night, as darkness fell across the mountains, an iron bar was used to secure the door from the inside. In the new year of 1846, violence and the threat of violence hung over Turin Bryan. The growing crisis caused by the famine was leading to greater acts of violence. On January the 20th, Alfred Waller, one of the famous Wallers of Newport, was severely beaten near his home. Meanwhile, the Burkeries remained vulnerable in their house. Much like Edmund Shea, the farmer whose family had been burned alive back during the famine of 1821, the Burkery homestead was crowded at night. There were four adults, Daniel, Ellen, their daughter Ellen, who was 21, and a labourer, William Walsh. Then there was their three teenage children, Jeremiah, Honora and Grace, and the younger siblings, William, Catherine and Andrew. Given the house only consisted of two rooms and a loft, people slept everywhere. Ellen and Daniel shared a bedroom with some of their children, while the kitchen was full too. In the loft, the farm labourer, William Walsh, slept with the younger boys. If someone set the thatch alight, the loss of life would be horrendous. The tensions surrounding the Berkery household continued through the early months of 1846. The arrival of an extra farmhand, a teenage boy, Pat Hayes, only added to the growing, overcrowded situation in the house. The police constables stationed close by provided some safety, but attackers had, in other similar situations, avoided using guns so they would not alert the authorities. Week after slow week passed, until eventually the tension broke into the open. Sometime on the night of March 10th into the morning of March the 11th, there was a loud banging on the door of the police barracks at Lackamore, 130 metres from the Berkery's household. Outside, a bloodied man was calling the police. Constable Michael Foy went to the door, put his hand on the knob and slowly opened it. On the other side, a man told him to hurry. He claimed that Terry Alts were attacking the house of his employer. Constable Foy recognised the man immediately. It was William Walsh, the labourer, who worked on Ellen and Daniel Berkery's farm. They were under attack. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.